I didn't know y'all stuck with me tonight. I'm sort of mad at Nathan. He uh, had a last-minute trip fall through, so he couldn't teach tonight. So, well, he, he was he was he had a trip and couldn't teach, and then at the last minute, the trip fell through. So, I'm going to be going over some stuff that uh, he has already taught in Sunday school class. Um, and if you've been in that Sunday school class for I don't know how long ago that's been, a couple of years ago, I guess. Um, you probably have the book that I'm going to be referencing tonight, and it's going to be a whole lot of reading, um, and I'm hoping that um, you've got a pen and paper. You can take some notes, especially if you weren't able to go through the class, and, um, and I'll be honest with you, this class that we were able to go through, this, um, this book called Keeping Your Kids on God's Side changed my life, and uh, I feel certain it can do the same for you. If you don't already have the book, I would suggest you pick it up. It's by Natasha Crane. Um, you know, when I get to thinking about that kind of stuff, um, apologetics, you know, and, and uh, that's the kind of stuff I like. I like digging in and finding truth and, um, you know, not just, not just truth that's revealed, revealed to me by the Holy Spirit, but truth that can be seen historically. Um, you know, with, with the Old Testament being connected to the New Testament like it is, um, I, f- I feel like you can go to... You know, you can go to the New Testament and just sort of grab hold of the gospel, you know, and the passion of Christ and just start pulling on it. And the roots are going to start pulling out all the way down through the New Testament. So you're going to have, you're going to have, it's all the way back to Genesis. So from Genesis all the way up to, um, you know, the book of Matthew uh, obviously points to the coming Christ. All of it. It's, it's all pointing, pointing in this direction to Jesus. And then you have the New Testament, which gives us, um, you know, obviously the passion, the gospel, um, the Great Commission. It gives us uh, the foundation for the church. And then, you know, ultimately it gives us the revelation of all of it. Um, but the center point of that, where the, where the Old Testament meets the New Testament, for me, is what I really love to look at. Because we're talking about the resurrection, right? So... With the Old Testament in one hand and the New Testament in the other, it sort of hinges right there. All right, so if the resurrection's true, then the whole thing's true, right? Um, so that's what we want to do tonight. We want to look, uh, want to dig into this book. I'm going to do a lot of reading, like I said, and um, I'd like to get through a couple of chapters um, before we're done. So we'll move we'll move through it fairly quickly. But there, you know, there's some notes in here I would like like for you to take um, just. Um, some basic stuff, some highlights that we're going to hit. Um, but Acts 17.31 tells us that God has given proof to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. God's given proof to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. Um, so what we're going to look at first in the book is chapter 21, um, and it's the historical facts that almost all scholars agree on. The historical facts of the resurrection. And this isn't just, now we're not just talking about Christian scholars. We're talking about almost all scholars, critical scholars, um, agnostic scholars, atheistic, um, you know, historical scholars have looked at these. We're going to look at four. I think there's a couple more. We're going to look at four. They've looked at these facts and they've said these are facts. The problem is where we know the resurrection 
uh, fills in the gap for all of those. The problem with you know the secular scholars, they they try to fill in, they try to use different uh, uh, explanations for each fact. So that's what we're going to look at. Um, So there's four facts here. Let me pull this up. I'm not as organized as uh, Pastor Israel, but here we go. So we talked about um, how important the resurrection is, and if if the resurrection isn't true, then I mean, if that didn't happen, then the, the Christianity Christianity is meaningless. I mean, essentially. So we'll start right here. Again, it's chapter 21. If you guys have books at home, you can check it out. If you don't, grab a book, check it out. Um, It says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he, as he predicted, he was a false prophet, and there's no reason to follow any of his teachings, regardless of who he or his followers thought he was. But if he did rise from the dead, that event would have confirmed his radical claims to divinity, and everything he said is of the utmost importance. I, and I do. I would like to say, um, you know, when you're when you're talking to skeptics and you're talking to um, maybe even agnostic or atheists, we we know that we know the Word of God to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down by man. We know that. But when you start talking to people that don't believe in those scriptures, and all you do is spit scriptures at them, you're going to lose them. Um, so. I think that's important that we're able to show, you know, scriptures aside, not that scriptures aren't important, we're all going to read through some scriptures or not, but scriptures aside for the unbeliever to be able to show the kind of stuff that we're on CD tonight, I think is uh, very important. And it says, um, so why should we believe the resurrection is true? While the truth of the resurrection is undoubtedly a matter of personal conviction, there's actually significant historical evidence to support its veracity. To be sure, most people don't come to Jesus because they first learned about this evidence, but learning about it can give your kids a much deeper level of confidence that the, that the convictions they already have are true. The kind of confidence that isn't shaken when their atheist friends ask, when their atheist friends ask, you seriously believe a dead person came back to life? The kind of confidence that allows them to reply, absolutely. There's good reason to believe God raised Jesus from the dead, and when you look at the historical data, let me explain why. This and the next two chapters will focus on the historical evidence for the resurrection. In this chapter, we'll look at the basic historical facts surrounding the resurrection that even non-believing scholars agree on. It's very important we remember that. Even non-believing scholars agree with these facts. So this is called the minimal fact approach to the resurrection. Um, You can find that several people have written about it, and it's generally the terminology they use, the minimal fact approach. When historians, when historians want to investigate something that happened 2,000 years ago, obviously they're going to have limited information to work with. But that doesn't mean they throw their hands in the air and conclude, I can't know anything. It's their job to uncover whatever historical facts are available, form a hypothesis, or form, a, form hypotheses that might explain those facts, and make conclusions about what happened based on the strongest hypothesis. We can follow the same process when looking at the historical events surrounding the resurrection. In the book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, Dr. Gary Habermas and Michael Lacona detail what they call minimal facts approach to the resurrection. Their basic objective is to strip away any religious assumptions about what happened and consider only the data that strongly attested historically and that are granted by nearly every scholar who studies the subject. 
even the rather skeptical ones. And in a culture, just like we talked about a while ago, in a culture where the reliability of the Bible is frequently questioned, you can see why this approach can be so powerful in discussions with non-believers. The following four historical facts are the ones that uh, they say are generally accepted even by skeptics. Okay, so I'm just going to go, I'm going to list them, and then we'll go back and touch on each one. So fact number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Jesus died by crucifixion. Again, widely accepted by almost everybody as a fact, historical fact. Historical fact number two, the disciples believed that Christ rose from the dead. They believed it. And that's different than just proclaiming it. They actually believed it, and there's proof of that in their life. Uh, fact number three would be um, Paul, uh, Paul, his sudden conversion, Paul's sudden conversion. And fact number four is James, uh, Jesus' brother James' conversion. So let's look at the, that number one there. It's uh, that Jesus died by crucifixion. It says, we know from many historical sources that the crucifixion was a common form of execution used by the Romans. It isn't suspicious at all that the Gospels say Jesus died on the cross. His crucifixion is also referenced by several non-Christian historical sources, including Josephus, Tacitus, Lucian of Samosata, and the Jewish Talmud. The Jewish Talmud. So there you have, there you have um, non-Christian writers from that time writing about it. So, um, you know, for those to be non-believers and non-followers of, of the movement of Christ, it's, uh, it's pretty compelling to me that they would take time to write about this person. It might not seem like this fact about Jesus' death gets you very far toward evidence for a resurrection, but in the next chapter, you'll see that some people believe Jesus only appeared to die. They believe he lost consciousness, consciousness and later revived, enabling him to fake the resurrection. However, we'll see in, the cha in that chapter that the fact he was crucified means his survival was virtually impossible. So this fact is actually an important starting point. Fact number two, Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. This is arguably the most important fact of all. There is a virtual consensus among scholars who studied Jesus' resurrection that subsequent, subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples really believed that he appeared to them risen from the dead. This conclusion has been reached by data that suggests that, number one, the disciples themselves claimed that the risen Jesus had appeared to them, and number two, subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples were radically transformed from fearful, cowering individuals who denied and abandoned him at his arrest and execution into bold proclaimers of the gospel. A skeptic may claim that there are natural as opposed to supernatural explanations for what happened to the disciples. But very few deny that the disciples actually experienced something. And that something must have been significant in order to have triggered their transformation into bold proclaimers of the gospel, a role that, requ that required the disciples to willingly face severe persecution and death. This is a powerful fact. And we'll look at the implications in more detail when we consider possible explanations in the next two chapters. Uh, fact number three, the church persecutor Paul was suddenly changed. We know who Paul is, right? He's the one who's dragging Christians out the doors of their houses and throwing them in prison. He's the man that approved of the stoning of uh, the first stoning of the uh, first disciple. 
held their coats. Paul wrote several books in the New Testament and undeniably one of the most influential Christians who ever lived. But he wasn't always a devoted follower of Jesus. Initially, he was a passionate enemy of the early church. Paul, whose Hebrew name was Saul, was first mentioned in Acts 7, verse 58, where it's noted that he observed the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Acts 8.1 explicitly states Paul approved of the execution. Acts 8.3 goes on to say, Saul was ravaging the church, entering the house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In his letter to the Corinthians, in his letter to the Corinthians, Galatians, and Philippians, Paul later described these persecutions himself. And then you can reference that with 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Galatians 1, 13, and Philippians 3, 6. But something changed everything for Paul. Acts 9, 3 tells us that he was on a journey to Damascus when suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Acts 9, 4 through 6 says, Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you per persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. After this experience, Paul converted to the Christian faith and tirelessly preached that Jesus died for the sins of the world and that he was buried and that he resurrected. Paul was willing to endure great suffering to spread this message and was eventually martyred for his claims. Paul's conversion is a particularly compelling historical fact because he was an enemy of the church at the time he claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. It takes something significant for a zealous enemy to switch sides. Fact number four, James is, uh, the skeptic brother of Jesus, James, was suddenly changed. Although we don't have as much information on Jesus' brother James as we do on Paul, we know enough to conclude that James converted to Christianity because he believed the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. We can conclude this basis on the following points. First point, Jesus' brothers, including James, were not believers during Jesus' ministry. That's how it kind of makes sense, right? You grow up with this guy, and all of a sudden he's claiming he's the Messiah. I mean, you know him better than anybody. I mean, I can see, you know, I can see the point they're making there for sure. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says Jesus appeared to James. And after Jesus' alleged resurrection, James is described as a leader of the church. That's in Acts 15 and Galatians 1. James was martyred for his beliefs, as recorded by both Christian and non-Christian historical writings. Clement of Alexandria and Josephus both wrote about that. As with Paul, the question is, what happened to cause such a drastic change in belief? So that's the question for Paul. I mean, something had to happen, right? And I think that's why they list that as fact number, uh, fact number three for Paul and also for James, because they're both skeptics, and in fact, Paul was an enemy of the church. So to completely switch sides, you know, you don't just—you're not just an Auburn fan one day and a Bama fan the next, right? Not without something significant, you know. Um, you, you don't just flip sides like that. And um, so that—that's—that's that's actually the uh, the end of that chapter here. Um, but I will—I will say this: I, I did. I, I do read some of William Lane Craig. Some of you know who that guy is. He's brilliant. Um, and he even goes even further to say that um, 
an established fact is that Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph, Arimathea. He also says that it's an established fact that a group of women followers are the ones that found the empty tomb. And the point he makes there is that if the disciples were going to make up this story, just make this story up, they would not use women during that time to be the witnesses to something that they're claiming. Because, to be honest, uh, you know, the testimony of a woman back then didn't carry much weight. Um, so the fact that so, so the fact that they you know that it was a group of women is uh, pretty strong evidence that it's true. And as far as the um, the fact that he was buried by Joseph Arimathea, it says that um, you know there's no other competing burial stories, you know. And and Joseph he was a, he was a member of the Jewish court, so you know which tells us that not only would the disciples know where the tomb was, and the Pharisees would also know where the tomb was. So they knew where the tomb, they know the right tomb, right? I think that's important to know. So what are the major theories people use to explain these facts? There's some wild ones, and we're going to get into them. It says here, when I first started studying the resurrection, I was surprised that there were multiple theories about what happened. I assumed that people who didn't believe in the resurrection just didn't believe it. But once you establish that there are several historical facts involved, you realize those facts require an explanation. So if you have the facts that aren't argued and you're, and you're, and you're denying the resurrection, then you have to come up with a reason. For, you have to come up with some kind of explanation for the facts. So there's seven theories. Theory number one, Jesus only appeared to die. That one's widely used. Theory number two, the disciples lied or stole Jesus' body. Theory number three, someone other than the disciples stole the body. Theory number four, witnesses went to the wrong tomb. Theory number five, the people who saw Jesus were hallucinating. Six, people invented Christianity based on pagan myths. And the last one at list is as Jesus' teachings spread, they were embellished with supernatural details. So those are the, the you know those are the kind of things that uh, not only we are going to hear maybe from the skeptic, but certainly your children are going to hear. Certainly your children that are going off to college, uh, they're going to hear they're going to hear all this, and you know I think it's very important that they're prepared to give an answer to this stuff that they know. Um, you know, things like the historical facts. Um, because, you know, if you don't have, if, if that's not part of your found, if you're not foundationally, you know, if that's not part of your foundation that you're able to, you know, give a, give a defense for your faith, then 
a lot of times, a lot of times, your faith crumbles, especially after you get out into the real world uh, regarding regarding you know teenagers. I've seen it happen, even in my own family. Um, so theory number one, Jesus only appeared to die. Some skeptics say that even if Jesus was crucified, he may not actually have died. He may have lost consciousness and only appeared to die. After his body was placed in the tomb, he could have, re he could have revived and showed himself to people faking a resurrection. So that's an actual argument that people make. I know that sounds crazy to us Christians, but to non-believers, this is no crazier than claiming a dead person came back to life. So let's take it for what it is and look at it. Look at two reasons this theory is no more plausible than the supernatural explanation it attempts to defeat. First, assume for a moment that Jesus really did survive the cross and emerge from the tomb after a failed crucifixion. Would the disciples have concluded that he had been resurrected with horrible wounds? They would have concluded that he was a dying man in need of help, not a savior. It's extremely unlikely that such a sight would have led the early Christians to believe that they, to believe all they did about Jesus. Second, given what we know today medically and historically about the crucifixion process, it's virtually impossible that Jesus survived. John 19.34 tells us that after Jesus died, a soldier pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. We, we now know that the description is consistent with a piercing of the heart, a certain death. In 1986, an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association stated, Interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. This theory, falls, this theory fails to explain the basic fact of what the early Christians believed, and it's medically implausible. Theory two, the disciples lied or stole Jesus' body. Some people purpose that the resurrection was nothing more than a deception by Jesus' followers, that they either lied or stole Jesus' body for a number of self-serving reasons. This is extremely unlikely in light of the minimal facts we established in the previous chapter. We recall that it's generally accepted that the disciples at least believed that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. Their lives were radically transformed by what they claimed to have witnessed to the point that they were willing to endure severe persecution and die for it. Why would anyone be willing to risk their life for something they knew to be a lie? At first, you might think, well, many people are willing to die for their religion today, and those religions aren't all true. It's a good point, but it's quite different. The disciples would have known they were risking their lives for something untrue. It would be, a, it would be strange indeed if the disciples all lied, never admitted it, and were willing to suffer and die for what was only a tall tale. There's another problem with this theory if you consider the conversions of the non-believers, Paul and James. Paul and James almost certainly wouldn't have converted if the disciples were simply being deceptive. James was a skeptic during Jesus' life, so something significant must have happened to him after Jesus' death to explain his conversion. Paul said he believed because Jesus appeared to him, Acts chapter 9. Neither of these conversions would likely be explained by a simple deception on the part of the disciples, this story fails on multiple levels. So you see how these, you see how all these theories that people try to come in up with, they just sort of crumble when you, you know, under the weight of the basic facts that are already known. Theory number three, someone other than the disciples stole Jesus' body. 
Given that the evidence points to the disciples truly believing that they had seen the risen Jesus, other people suggest that someone else may have stolen the body and tricked the disciples into believing Jesus rose from the dead. In this theory, all we have is a possible explanation for an empty tomb. But no one, but no one claimed to believe in the resurrection of Jesus just because his body was missing. This does nothing to explain why the disciples, Paul and James, all believed they saw Jesus. This theory simply can't account for the basic facts. Theory number four, witnesses went to the wrong tomb. What if no one was being deceitful, but the women and the disciples simply went to the wrong tomb, saw it was empty, and reasoned that Jesus had risen from the dead? This theory suffers from the same problem as the last one. It does nothing to explain why the disciples, Paul and James, all believed they saw Jesus. With that said, even in an empty tomb somehow, with that said, even if an empty tomb somehow spurred a belief in Jesus, in Jesus' resurrection, the Roman and Jewish, Jewish authorities would have immediately wanted to destroy that belief by doing what? Showing the body. Once again, this theory fails. Theory number five, the people who saw Jesus were hallucinating. This is one of the more um, comical ones for me. It's common, for gr it's common for grieving people to have hallucinations following the death of a loved one. A hallucination is a false perception of something that isn't there. If the disciples deeply loved Jesus and were grieving after his death, isn't it possible they were just hallucinating, as people are known to do in such circumstances? This theory doesn't work for two major reasons. First, hallucinations are in the mind of one person. They're not group experiences. While all of Jesus' followers may have experienced the same grief, they would not have all experienced the same hallucinations of Jesus being raised from the dead. Not only is it highly improbable that multiple individuals had the same hallucination, it's highly improbable that groups of individuals had a simultaneous hallucination. In 1 Corinthians 15.5, Paul said that Jesus appeared to the twelve. In verse 6, he said that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And in verse 7, he said that Jesus appeared to all the apostles. Paul even noted in verse 6 that many of the 500 were still alive, suggesting that they were available to confirm his account. To propose that all these individuals and groups had the same hallucination defies what we know about psychology. Second, hallucinations aren't likely to account for the conversion of Paul. Paul was not a follower of Jesus during his lifetime and would not have been grieving when he died. That's a good point. There is no reason, therefore, to think Paul would have experienced a grief-based hallucination. This story fails to reasonably explain the basic historical facts. Theory number six. People invented Christianity based on pagan myths. Of all the theories here, this is the one your kids are most likely to encounter in popular culture. Countless images have floated through social media with comparison charts between Jesus and pagan deities, suggesting that the resurrection was something ancient people invented based on other myths of the time. For example, one popular image says that the god Mithra was born of a virgin on December 25th, had 12 disciples, performed miracles, was buried in a tomb, rose after three days, had followers who celebrated his resurrection annually, and was considered the way, the truth, and the light. 
At the bottom of the image, it asks, why can't Christians at least be original? Now, what other way to get into the mind of a young person than to create a meme, right? Because they see these memes and, you know, it's got to be true. Somebody took time to make a meme, it's got to be true. I mean, that's it's a very valid point. Um, you know, if they, they see this kind of stuff and they don't know any better, you know, watch out. The bottom, okay, let's see. Other, other deities with various alleged parallels include Horus, Krishna, Addis. I'm butchering these names, I know. Dionysus, Adonis, or Adonis, Osiris, and Persius. There are two key questions we need to consider with this theory. Number one, are there truly close parallels between, between Christianity and the pagan myths of Jesus' time? You have to admit that if the Mithra story really included all the above elements, it would give anyone pause to consider, it would give anyone pause to consider the relationship to Christianity. And two, if there are parallels, does it really matter? Let's start with the first question. Contrary to popular internet claims, the vast majority of alleged parallels aren't even true. For example, there is no reference in historical writings to most of the quoted facts about Mithra, like the claim that he came back to life after three days. These are just unfounded claims that have been copied repeatedly online. In other cases, the parallel is hardly parallel when you look at the details of the myth. For example, the Egyptian god Osiris was murdered and his body parts were scattered. His wife put him back together, enabling him to journey to the underworld and become the lord of the dead. He never returned to the world of the living. Can this really be considered parallel to the accounts of Jesus' resurrection? I think not. In yet other cases, the alleged parallel is so broad that it would, that it would be true in any religion. For example, many gods supposedly perform miracles, God's little g, that's not exactly a suspicious parallel, given that any god should be able, by definition, to act supernaturally. Perhaps most incredibly, some alleged parallels are written many years after Christianity arose. All that said, let's still consider the second question and pretend for a moment that we could find legitimate close parallels between ancient myths and Christianity. Would it matter? No. The claims of the resurrection are... The claims of the resurrections in other religions can't explain the evidence that exists for Jesus' resurrection. The minimal historical facts remain. Any supposed resurrection must be judged on its own merits. This theory is popular but completely falls apart under scrutiny. Theory 7. As Jesus' teachings spread, they were embellished with supernatural details. This theory assumes Jesus was a historical person. But, but states that all the supernatural details of his life and resurrection crept into the accounts years later as legend. To understand the context for this theory, it's important to know that the New Testament authors didn't record their writings immediately after Jesus died. There's at least a 20-year period separating Jesus' death and the earliest Christian writings. What if those writings reflect rumors that snowballed during that 20-year period? If that were the case, how could we ever know? you might be surprised to learn that we actually can know some truly important things about that period based on evidence from Paul's writings, in particular 1 Corinthians. Within 1 Corinthians is a creed that most scholars agree dates to just four to six years after Jesus' death. Although the passage doesn't say much, scholars can tell the words aren't Paul's. 
and that he's referencing a formal statement of faith that already existed. The verses of note are 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. And it says this, I delivered you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and, he, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. At the beginning of the passage, Paul said he received this information. Most likely, the most likely time for him to have received it would have been in the early A.D. 30s, when, according to Galatians 1.18, he went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him 15 days. That means this creed was already formulated and being transmitted within four to six years of Jesus' death. This shows that Jesus' resurrection was far from a legend that arose decades or more after his death. Christians were asserting he came back to life since right after he died. Where's the explanation that fits all the facts? So you see they have to come up. You, you've got to, like I said before, you've got to account for the facts because the facts are the facts, right? So you've got to account for those. But this, these are all the um, wild allegations that have to be made for the skeptic to be able to explain why these are facts when we simply know that the resurrection answers all of them. And, um, you know, to me, just it's just logically, logically consistent that the, the resurrection uh, is the answer. When we consider all these theories in the light of the minimal facts from chapter 21, we can see that they fail to make sense of the basic historical data on one or more levels. There are several other theories not discussed here, but all have similar weaknesses. Christians, of course, have another explanation that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I got through that quicker than I thought. Comments? Questions? That might have been a little dry, but I do feel like that was a lot of good information. wow the hallucination one it gets me you know 